Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession on the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our Catechized Life series, today covering the section Christian Questions and Their Answers. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point in St. Paul's and Wine Hill, Illinois. And our catechist for this series is Pastor Mark Bestel. He is pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. And Pastor Bestel, as we get going here today, first thing I want to note is that this section, which we've talked about you have section one, which is the six chief parts of the catechism. And section two is our daily prayers. And then section three, which we covered last week, is our table of duties. And then this section, at least again in our 2017 edition of Luther's Small Catechism with explanation put out by Concordia Publishing House, the section four is Christian questions and their answers. And you'll notice, especially in that most recent edition that I just referenced from Concordia Publishing House, there's a little note there about this section that there's some debate as to whether or not this is actually from Luther's hand. It wasn't necessarily always included in the catechism, but it has been certainly at other points as well. And I'm actually going to leave that discussion about the validity of that, the history of that, for another time on this show, we've certainly covered it in the history, especially on this show, as we've in the past just done a straight read through and provided kind of a commentary, audio commentaries we've gone and provided some of that historical background and those sorts of things. On this particular series, we're looking more to teach the faith, to have a series of catechetical lessons. And so it's really with that focus in mind that I really like to spend our time on today as to we do have this included for several editions of the Luther Small Catechism, especially with the explanation included coming out of our church body and that we use in teaching to our children. Uh, as you've talked about, Pastor Bestel, in the previous episodes, sometimes the daily prayers and table of duties and certainly the Christian questions and their answers sadly just get neglected in catechesis in a lot of congregations. Pastors run out of time and we understand all those struggles, but especially as it is included, I'd really like you to give us a little instruction here and encouragement as to, since it is included, why is it good to have this included? Again, regardless of it being written by Luther or not, we'll leave that for another time. What role does this section play in the catechism? And why is it important for us to include it in our catechesis, not only on this show for this series, but as we train Christians in our congregations as well? Go ahead, Pastor Bessel. Well, Sean, you're right that whenever you see a title 
in a book with an asterisk next to it that gives some sort of fine print that says, yeah, you might not have this be an an authentic read or whatever. Uh, People tend to say, all right, then I'm just going to skip over this. And that really would be an unfortunate way to use or to neglect section four of the small catechism, whether it's from Luther's hand or not. Uh, remember, we are Lutherans, not in the sense that we follow the man Martin Luther, but the theology that he taught and professed, we know to be the one true faith. And that certainly that theology does not belong to him. But as there are confessors throughout the ages that share that theology, then whoever wrote this, even if it were a pseudo Luther, the theology is wonderful. And therefore, we ought make use of it. But like we said regarding daily prayers and table of duties, it's not often taught. Now, I think the argument for this one is even, or how would you say it, the the disuse of this one or or the, the lack of interest in this particular section goes even deeper than daily prayers and table of duties, because with those first two, at least people, when they sit down and look at it, they say, oh, now I see how this all ties in and that there's a great depth of theology here. Whereas this one is, in a sense, a review of everything that has been discussed up to this point. And as it's a review, people say, well, if it's a review, then I really don't need to focus on it as long as I learn it in the six chief parts. But keep in mind, there's a difference between learning in the six chief parts and actually putting into use and actually putting into practice. And I think one of the great benefits of this section is that you now put into practice in your daily life, your daily meditation, some of the questions and answers that arise for the Christian as one who is simultaneously a saint and a sinner, some of the questions and answers that arise that should properly prepare you for the Lord's Supper and also should help you, in a sense, examine what it means to be a Christian who is simultaneously saint and sinner. So yes, in this section, as we go through it today, we'll notice a lot of quote unquote review material, but that material before was in a sense, the doctrinal teaching. Now we're going to look at it as saying, how does this doctrinal teaching actually play out in daily life? Or how do I, as I examine myself, how do I see it in daily life in a way that is not just sort of a head nod of assent to doctrinal content that sits on a shelf in a book entitled The Small Catechism. So this section is very helpful, allows us to really wrestle with who we are as saint and sinner and prepare ourselves for the sacrament each and every Sunday. We also ought to see this then in the context of sort of a week-long catechism study, right? So as we've talked about, the six chief parts prepare us and help us learn the doctrine. They prepare us for Sunday morning in the sense of saying, okay, I know what the word of God is, the first three chief parts, right? The law and the gospel, and then the Lord's prayer teaching us law and gospel lived out in daily life. So I see that. And then I couple that with the second three chief parts, baptism, confession, absolution, the Lord's supper, that all of those three chief parts teach me what to expect on Sunday morning in terms of God's gifts to me and to the church by which he creates and sustains and strengthens faith in the heart. So word and sacrament together teach us then the whole doctrine, the whole counsel of God's will toward his church. And then that reality that we see come to pass on Sunday morning and that we get to partake of on Sunday morning, if that's all wrapped up in the six chief parts, and I'll sort of make that argument, by the way, when we get to 
our last couple shows on the liturgy and how that is catechetical in many ways. And so if the six chief parts are that, then those prepare us for, as we've said now, faith in God and fervent love toward one another. There's daily prayers and table of duties. So if you've got the whole week long in the first three sections, then this fourth section comes in and at the end of the week says, okay, well, how did you do? Right? So if you know this in theory, but now you have to critique yourself through these 20 questions, how did you do? And let's examine that. And no Christian can get through these answers and say, oh, I did so well that I, there's just no benefit for me in running back to the sacrament. Right? And that's sort of the two main portions of this section four is my need for God's grace, but then also the second big weight, if you will, of this section is the strength and the weight of the sacrament of the altar and just how necessary it is for my benefit. And so as we go through these 20 questions here, we'll see that these questions really help us review how we've done throughout the week leading up to perhaps it's used Saturday evening or early Sunday morning. I actually have in the uh, bulletin here at Calvary in Elgin, we have a little section every Sunday's bulletin that says, all right, here's what the readings are going to be for the following week. Here's what the hymn of the day will be for the following week or the chief hymn, the sermon hymn. And then right with that, an exhortation that on Saturday evening or early Sunday morning, all Christians are encouraged to make use of this fourth section of Christian questions and their answers in preparation for the sacrament of the altar. So this is how we should really see this section for as such a helpful section. Uh, again, whether or not it was written by Luther's own hand, it certainly contains a theology to which Luther would ascend. Yes, this is most certainly true, as it simply reviews all the theology that is taught in the six chief parts specifically and more broadly in sections one through three. Now, as we talk about this, I might, if I can sort of shift that original question onto something that's sort of related, uh, but maybe a tangent, is this idea of examining oneself. Keep in mind that self-examination and preparing for the sacrament through this list of 20 questions is good, right, salutary. The scriptures admonish us and exhort us. Uh, here we've got as part of our confessions this exhortation of saying, yes, everyone should constantly be examining himself. And we see that not only here, but in the large catechism and elsewhere where Luther talks about this idea that every Christian should really examine himself and whether or not he is properly prepared for this. However, that is different than the duty of the pastor to examine those who desire to come to the Lord's table. That pastoral examination is still necessary, right? It might not be necessary as frequently or as intimately as what a Christian might wrestle with every Saturday evening. The pastor does not obviously need to go to every Christian's home each Saturday night and help him examine himself according to these Christian questions and their answers. A uh, pastor's duty, take for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, and we've talked about this, but just as review, uh, pastor as the steward of the mysteries does have a role in saying, you are properly prepared or you are not properly prepared to come to the sacrament. As we've said, that role is not quite as intimately detailed, if you will, that his role might be with either public sins that everyone is aware of, right? If someone keeps coming into the congregational life and saying, oh, don't worry that I'm 
sleeping with my girlfriend outside of marriage. Uh, I use the Christian questions and their answers every Saturday evening, so I'm all set to go. Well, then the pastor obviously has a role to step in and say, no, I'm sorry, you are misinformed. You are not properly well-prepared. And as a steward of the mysteries, I have the responsibility to God for the benefit of the congregation and the individual sinner and Christian. Uh, I have the responsibility to both loose in the forgiveness of sins, but also bind in the retaining of sins. And so both we have this, in a sense, this gatekeeper to the sacraments, though that might be sort of a legalistic word, but understood rightly, the pastor is there to safeguard the proper stewarding of the sacraments, and he still has a role, and yet the individual Christian is certainly taught to examine himself, because the one who takes that seriously will more likely be the one who, when he's really struggling with something, will run to the pastor and seek pastoral care, seek guidance from the scriptures, seek even private confession absolution in preparation for the sacrament of the altar. So we don't want to say that section four does away with the need for pastoral oversight of the sacrament. On the other hand, we don't want to take the other extreme either and say that because we have pastoral oversight of the sacrament, the individual Christian should not spend any time examining himself before coming to the sacrament. Sadly, I think our congregational bulletins sometimes can sort of minimize either effort, and they do so by asking what are really, you know, sort of shallow surface level questions, this Q&A that's often thrown into the bulletins, uh, and it's sort of like a three-question tease at whether or not we are examining ourselves. And so it'll be something like, uh, is Jesus your Lord and Savior? And are you sorry for your sins? And do you believe in the real presence? And if you answered yes to all three of these, then come on forward. Well, that just sounds trite because it is honestly sort of trite. Uh, there should be a deeper, more hearty examination, not only of oneself, but also of the pastor taking on his proper duty to say, you know, I'm not going to leave the person to examine himself in three little tiny questions that any Christian can answer in some watered-down form. That's not what the sacrament of the altar is all about. There's a reason that we appeal to the unity of doctrine, to the right understanding of Christ's body and blood in the sacrament, you know, to appeal to the penitent heart in preparing himself to receive these holy things. And we'll get to this at the very end, but I think it ties in well here that at the very end of this section, it even has this notice that says, this is no joke, right? Do not treat this as child's play. And sadly, I think that some of our bulletin announcements in trying to just sort of excuse this notion that, you know, pastors, you don't really have to roll up your sleeves and do the dirty work because just ask them to answer these three questions to themselves, and then they'll be good to go. Uh, that really trivializes what is happening here, and it sort of almost turns it into child's play. But rather, you know, if we're going to do this in the bulletin, I would rather at least just print out the 20 questions, put that in your bulletin. And if we're going to if we're going to uh, put the 20 questions in the bulletin, then, hey, maybe I'd be more willing to say if you read the bulletin and you could assent to it, then at least at least we've asked you to wrestle with it that much. I still would not, you know, in, in all seriousness, still would not say that that's sufficient because the pastor does have a responsibility to be the steward of the mysteries. And part of that is to help the Christian examine himself rightly. And yet the Christian can, through this wonderful resource here in section four, the Christian can rightly wrestle with these questions every week. Because as we go through them, we'll see that, boy, the more I wrestle with these, 
the more I realize not only my need, but how precious is the sacrament. I'm really glad you added that in there because I was going to ask that as a follow-up question if you didn't go that direction, especially in this sense that I know some of the criticism sometimes that comes with these Christian questions and answers. Again, aside from the history of was it by Luther or not, does it really belong in the small catechism and so forth, or even by folks that are really confessional Orthodox Lutherans, they're, they're desiring to be faithful and so forth. And I have heard that their honest concern sometimes is that just with these questions that the assumption will be by a visitor coming to church or something like that, well, yeah, I've, I've gone through these questions and I can basically say yes. And so then they can just come on up. Well, that's not exactly what scripture teaches. And so that's not what we practice either when it comes to the Lord's Supper. You're right. We do have a responsibility for stewardship. And so I always put it this way. I include in my bulletin announcement, which is really lengthy. I probably, I maybe have one of the longer statements on communion uh, in the LCMS. I don't know that for certain, but I I have a pretty lengthy one there uh, because I think it's a very serious matter, number one. But then number two, I also include in there, you know, things that I want my own people that I'm entrusted with their spiritual care to exercise for their own care and for their own Christian piety. And so I include in my announcement that, you know, in the Lutheran service book, our hymnal, you can find the Christian questions and their answers on page 329. You know, we, we include the small catechism and this section in our hymnals. And so I don't have to print in the bulletin. I just send them to their hymnal. Hymnal is such a great resource. But, uh, you know, and that I actually encourage in Bible classes and so forth to my people, hey, use this as part of your preparation weekly. Uh, you should have a hymnal in the home. You should have small catechism in the home and do this at home. But even so, if you come to church and you're sitting there and you're praying and preparing to receive the divine gifts, go ahead and use this as a proper preparation. But I make it clear that that does not mean just come up if you've gone through these questions. Um, and I actually had to do this recently, and I somewhat share this with some gentle care because they were very receptive to it. It wasn't a big blow up or anything. And but it did throw them off. But I actually stooped down at the rail. There were some visitors that came and they came after the opening hymn and I didn't get a chance to talk to them. And I just had to very kindly say, I'm sorry, I don't know you. And we had to have a little conversation right there at the rail. And that's awkward. I always try to have it. I stand at the door and greet folks as they come into church and try to have conversations there or hope for folks to call ahead of time and so forth. But there is that pastoral need because as I brought up before, one of the images I often use and I think helps people understand this is I don't want to hand a loaded gun to someone that I don't know if they know how to use this. They could hurt themselves and hurt others. And so that pastoral oversight of the supper as a steward of the mysteries is important component with this. And so I definitely wanted to highlight that very well. So I'm, I'm very glad that you took that in there. Uh, did you have anything else on that before we jump into the questions and so forth here? Yeah, I guess just real quick, I'd add that, uh, and you're absolutely right, it's so important for pastors to talk with parishioners or with visitors beforehand. And with the visitor, you know, I typically will simply point out to them, and you're right, it happens to all of us. It's a little bit awkward that you have to stop, you know, and thankfully the congregation is singing communion hymns, so it's probably not noticed by very many people uh, other than the few who are communing at the altar rail at that moment, maybe the 10 or 12 or however many commune in each sanctuary at each altar rail. Uh, however, in that awkward moment or after that, you know, 
as we do get the opportunity to meet with the folks who don't understand differently, I think a simple way to encourage them is to simply say, look, we just like to teach first, commune second, right? And this is the pattern that Jesus took. We're going to teach first, and then we're going to commune second. And we want to teach you. We want to know that we're all on the same page together. We're just going to teach first and commune second. Uh, you know, something that you said always or also raised a, a thought in my mind too, Sean, about this, that this examination is not just for visitors in the first time that they come to the sacrament. But as we've said all throughout this, this is weekly for the congregation, for the longtime Lutheran, for the longtime member to weekly wrestle with these things. You know, you and I were talking off the air not too long ago about the idea that dead orthodoxy can be a problem not just in the liturgy, but in daily life, that we don't want Christians who sort of live a life of dead orthodoxy where they just assent to these things as if they're true in a textbook, and then they go live their life like a bunch of godless secularists. And so, you know, this section four is so helpful in helping Lutherans see that wrestling with sin and temptation and wrestling with these questions of the faith is very much a part of a living orthodoxy. Or as the book of Hebrews says, it let us strive to enter the rest that is already ours. Right? And so we do strive, not in a pietistic sense, not in a works-righteous sense, but in the sense of saying, I'm not going to grow complacent toward these holy things of God, but rather I'm going to wrestle with these things. And this section really helps us understand what wrestling looks and sounds and feels like as we prepare for the sacrament of the altar each Sunday. Well said. And I always like to point, too, that it is part of my pastoral care. I'm actually caring for your soul even when I deny you of this, because I don't want anything to come to your judgment. And certainly, as you focus us on their encouragement towards using this rightly and for our benefit in our Christian life every day, right? Beautiful, beautiful thoughts there. All right, let's go ahead and jump into this then. And I will be reading from the Luther Small Catechism as we have it, again, from our 2017 edition from Concordia Publishing House. And this is Christian questions with their answers. And I'll read the introduction here and then just the first four questions and their answers and then let you give us some teaching on that. Then we'll have a break and we'll come back and finish it in the second segment of the show, the rest of those. So this is questions one through four of Christian questions and their answers and a little introduction here. After confession and instruction in the Ten Commandments, the Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, the pastor may ask, or Christians may ask themselves, these questions. Do you believe that you are a sinner? Yes, I believe it. I am a sinner. How do you know this? From the Ten Commandments, which I have not kept. Are you sorry for your sins? Yes, I am sorry that I've sinned against God. What have you deserved from God because of your sins? His wrath and displeasure, temporal death, and eternal damnation. See Romans 6, verses 21 and 23. All right, Pastor Bessel, go ahead and give us uh, what's going on in here, obviously focused in on the sins and what we deserve for them. Yeah, so these first four questions are certainly a direct focus on the Ten Commandments and our relationship to them, a recap of the Ten Commandments, especially in their second function to act as a mirror for the sinner, right? So while we're going through this review or this wrestling, uh, it's not really acting as a curb. It's not curbing us necessarily from anything current, though, as we 
wrestle with this, it might prick us at the heart regarding something that we sort of have fallen into a pattern of doing. And so it curbs it in that sense. But mostly it acts here as a mirror to show us our sin. And a couple important things to point out with these first four questions. One, it's one thing to know your sins. It's another to be sorry for them. Right. So notice you've got the first question. Do you believe that you're a sinner? Yeah, I believe it. I'm, I'm a sinner. Well, it's easy for us to say that. It's another thing to actually have to admit or to actually have to wrestle with, am I sorry for this? This is question number three. Right. Yes, I am sorry that I have sinned. So we can get by with this all the time with saying, yep, yep, I'm a sinner. Everyone's a sinner. It's just human. You know, uh, nobody's perfect. All those different phrases by which we actually sort of subtly try to justify ourselves or justify the lack of repentance and not taking seriously the weight of sin. But this says, no, actually, I, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that I'm a sinner. The Ten Commandments tell me that. And yes, I am sorry for it. Not I'm going to explain it away, but yes, I am genuinely sorry for this. And notice what that third question says. I am sorry that I have sinned against God. That's another one that, you know, outside of the liturgy, in the moments of the liturgy, sometimes to keep up with the pace of the liturgy, we don't have time to just meditate upon that. And yet what a daunting reality, sort of a haunting reality that I have sinned against God, not just as horrible as it is to sin against my wife or my children or, you know, whatever it is, short temper or laziness, whatever the sin is, it's bad enough to have to admit that I've sinned against my neighbor. But this points out I've sinned against God. And it doesn't even qualify it that sometimes I've sinned against God, other times I've sinned against my neighbor. When I sin against my neighbor, I'm also breaking the first commandment and therefore sinning against God. And we've talked about that in episodes past. And so, you know, these first four questions are really important questions to set the stage that it's important to consider what you deserve. You're not a victim, right? What have you deserved from God because of your sins? Question four. You are not a victim of the situation. You are the problem in the situation. And so you are right to wrestle with the fact that each of us deserves God's wrath and displeasure with me, temporal death for me, and eternal damnation. Right? That's a very weighty thing to think about during the week, rather than just, in a sense, assent to it real quickly in liturgical wording on a Sunday morning. So this, these first four questions set a good stage for us. All right. With that stage set, we're going to go ahead and take a break here at this point. When we come back, we'll take the rest of these 20 Christian questions and their answers with our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestel. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith. And you're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. Greetings, saints of our Lord. This is Brady Finnern from Thy Strong Word. Join us to be renewed and refreshed by God's Word and to be pointed to our resurrected Lord Jesus every weekday from 11 to noon, live or on demand, because God has gifts to give for you. As we continue our Catechized Life series with 
our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestel. And Pastor Bestel, as we were setting up here, what we're covering here in this fourth section of Luther's small catechism, at least the editions that we have and have been using for several generations now as they come out in our church body from Concordia Publishing House, this section, Christian Questions with Their Answers. And again, regardless of the history of from Luther's own hand or not, uh, certainly was included pretty shortly after his death. Uh, You may even notice if you have your catechism open, it says that it first appeared attributed to Luther at least five years after his death. And so nonetheless, it does have a long tradition of being included in the small catechism. And as Pastor Bestel set up for us so well, lots of great reasons that we should treasure what it does for us in preparing for us to live our Christian faith and life. And so uh, good to cover on this show and in our catechesis for living our Christian life as well. Let's go ahead and pick up then with the fifth question, and I'm going to take questions five through 10 here. And so uh, several questions to cover, although they're all relatively short answers and so forth for the most part, but I'll take these together in a chunk and then give it over to Pastor Bestel to give us some more catechesis on what we're covering in these questions and their answers and how this leads us in living our Christian faith and life as well. So. Picking up with question five from Luther's Small Catechism, Christian Questions and Their Answers. Do you hope to be saved? Yes, that is my hope. In whom then do you trust? In my dear Lord Jesus Christ. Who is Christ? The Son of God, true God and man. How many gods are there? Only one, but there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What has Christ done for you that you trust in him? He died for me and shed his blood for me on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. Did the Father also die for you? He did not. The Father is God only, as is the Holy Spirit, but the Son is both true God and true man. He died for me and shed his blood for me. And actually, I'm going to go ahead and include question 11 here. I probably should have thought ahead on this and saw that question 11 really follows up with 10 as well. So this is also question 11 then as well. How do you know this? from the Holy Gospel, from the words instituting the sacrament, and by his body and blood given me as a pledge in the sacrament. All right, thus far the Christian questions and their answers from the small catechism. All right, that last question will also hinge then into what we see in 12. They all build upon one another. We're definitely seeing this building here. And so even as you pick up with question five here that I started with, with do you hope to be saved? Obviously that builds upon the first four questions that we covered which highlight that mere function of the law, showing us our sins and our sorrow over them. Well, what hope is there when when we're confronted with that reality? And so it leads us in that beautiful proclamation of the gospel. Go ahead and take us away with your catechesis here on questions five through 11. Sure, glad to do so, Sean. And I'm glad that you included question 11 especially because of that first phrase, from the Holy Gospel. And, you know, when I typically teach this or meditate upon this, I sort of look at questions 5 through 10 together. But that first phrase in question 11 sort of helps beg the question, if you will, well, where do we find this Holy Gospel? From the Holy Gospel, well, questions 5 through 10 sound a lot like the discussion of the Apostles' Creed, right? And so if questions 1 through 4 is a review of the Ten Commandments. Questions 5 through 10 properly, or specifically, are a reference to the creed or what we've learned in the creed. 
And then 11 picks up on that and says, hey, from this holy gospel that we confess in the creed, we learn in the creed. So notice that we're not going to go on to the Lord's Prayer because the Lord's Prayer is, in a sense, law gospel lived out in daily life. But rather, all of our doctrine can be found as law and gospel as taught in the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and then you put those two together and understand it in daily life in the Lord's Prayer. And now you see the first three chief parts of the Catechism. So this beautifully ties in all of these different elements, uh, especially in the first two chief parts, and then that encouragement to live that out in daily life. And that's why you're now actively wrestling with these 20 questions, whether it be Saturday night, Sunday morning, or any other time of the week. And so questions five through 10, and then also 11 jumping into uh, that section there. You know, what can we say about this in terms of how this emphasizes the creed? Notice that the creed is approached through the second article. Remember way back when we were starting this series and seems like a while ago now when we were just getting into the creed and I said, you know, I know typically we go sort of top to bottom, first article, the third article, but I like to teach it by moving right into the second article and then allowing that to open up to us the rest of the creed. Well, here you have it. Here you have it right in the Christian questions and their answers that we're going to just go right to the heart of the creed because there is my hope. And from that hope, then I can learn more about the God who is my Father and the God who in the third person of the Holy Spirit sanctifies and keeps me in this hope. And so here in questions five, six, and seven, you really have this focus on the creed starting with Article 2, okay? And then notice what is central to these questions in questions 5, 6, 7, you know, even 8 and 9 right in there, but also 9 and 10 specifically. What is central is the crucifixion. Interestingly, not the resurrection. And we've sort of hinted at this before, but just as a review, the heart of Christian faith is the crucifixion of Christ. I don't mean to pit that against the resurrection. The resurrection is, in a sense, the heart of the evidence that the Christian faith has reason to hope, right? St. Paul says, if Christ is not raised from the dead, we're of all men to be most pitied, we followed a lie. But in fact, Christ is risen from the dead. So the heart of the evidence of our salvation is the resurrection. And in that sense, we can say Christianity stands and falls with the resurrection. That's true before men, in a sense. That's true before those who want the evidence of history. But before God, our hope rests with the crucifixion of Christ, because once Christ is crucified, then death cannot hold him. He is the perfect substitute. He is the righteous substitute. And therefore, in a sense, and I don't mean to belittle it, but in a sense, his resurrection is a foregone conclusion. And yet before men and before the world, it is the heart of the evidence of everything. And yet when we are wrestling with our sins, when we're examining ourselves before God, the heart of everything is the crucifixion and saying, I'm a poor, miserable sinner, but for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for me, have mercy upon me. And so here you've got in questions nine and 10, the crucifixion as being central, the son helping us to better understand the Father and the Holy Spirit, as we saw in previous episodes and certainly throughout the scriptures, you see Jesus saying things like, no one comes into the Father but by me. He who has seen me has seen the Father, other quotations of that nature. But then also notice that number 10 makes the incarnation central. 
right? So question number 10, did the Father also die for you? He did not. The Father is God only, as is the Holy Spirit, but the Son is both true God and true man. Right now, we saw that up in question seven, who is Christ, the Son of God, true God and man, but we sort of passed over it for the moment. And now in question 10, this takes center stage, that it's not just that Christ died for us, but that our entire hope is in the incarnation, not just the incarnation as an event of history. Right? Question 10 is not just about saying uh, he once was born and laid in a manger and there were angels in the sky and the shepherds came, but rather it is our entire hope is in this reality that God has become man and that God now interacts with us as true God and true man interacting with man, interacting not only with his church, but with his brothers and as such caring for and sustaining his church in incarnate reality. Right? So the incarnation is not an event, it is his status. It is the forever after status. Once he has become man, he will never again shed that reality. And of course, that is center stage in everything, because not only does it matter for the crucifixion, but it of course also matters for the sacrament of the altar. That as we now go on in questions 11, 12, 13, 14, and following, everything now shifts to the sacrament of the altar which we cannot really focus on until we have a proper appreciation for the fact that the incarnation of Christ is central to everything. Without the incarnation, without the standing reality, the everlasting reality of the incarnate Christ, the sacrament is, as Calvin saw it, is something that we have to try to ascend into the heavens to feast on with our soul, because it's not flesh and blood truth. And yet, because of the incarnation, we need not be Calvinists. Thank God we need not be Calvinists, but rather we can rejoice in the flesh and blood reality of how our God cares for us. And so, as we get into question 11, notice that, yes, it's going to hint at what we have just discussed from the Holy Gospel. There's sort of a hint at the heart of the creed, as questions 5 through 10 have brought us through. But then it also couples that with not just the creed as a confession of historic reality, but also the words instituting the sacrament of the new covenant, and that new covenant being the ongoing reality between God and his church forever and ever and ever and ever. And therefore, the words instituting the sacrament teach us this. This is the meal of his covenant. And we also know this by his body and blood given me as a pledge in the sacrament. So not only the sacrament as an institution, not only the sacrament as something promised, but now as that which I am receiving in my own mouth, the substance itself of the sacrament is the never-ending reality of the incarnate God caring for his church. So question 11 is a beautiful tie from 5 through 10 into now the questions that follow. So let's go ahead then and pick up these questions as once again, they just build upon one another so well. And so it's hard to decide where to take a cut there. And so I just threw 11 on at the end there, but as it does serve as this hinge from what we were talking about into the next, I'll just review it again here as I pick up. So question 11 is how do you know this from the Holy Gospel, from the words instituting the sacrament and by his body and blood given me as a pledge and the sacrament? And so then moving on, picking up with question 12, we see those words instituting that. And so this is the question. 
What are the words of institution? Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Do you believe then that the true body and blood of Christ are in the sacrament? Yes, I believe it. What convinces you to believe this? The word of Christ, take, eat, this is my body. Drink of it, all of you. This is my blood. What should we do when we eat his body and drink his blood and in this way receive his pledge? We should remember and proclaim his death and the shedding of his blood as he taught us. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All right, Pastor Bessel, thus far, the small catechisms, Christian questions and their answers. I left off with question 15 there. Go ahead and give us what is the focus of this? Obviously, the Lord's Supper, as you set up for us, as we're transitioning into that with question 11 and those words instituting it. But give us the, the focus of what this is teaching and leading us in as we continue to build the confession of our Christian faith with these Christian questions and answers. Yeah, the obvious answer to your question is, well, the sacrament of the altar, right? It's teaching us to focus on the sacrament of the altar. But I take a step back for a second. And, you know, dear listener, as you are considering this and as you ponder these things each week, think about what a couple of these questions mean and how we can, in a sense, draw strength from them or find a deeper appreciation for them. First of all, that in, in number 12, we would actually take the time, not just in liturgical ritual, as if we're just reciting these words just because that's what the liturgy says on Sunday morning, and otherwise let's just get through them as quickly as possible. But no, these words are so near and dear to us because these are the words of the covenant. And so even when it's not the moment before receiving the meal, but even the evening before or even midweek and days before, I'm going to cherish these words of institution because these words of institution mean everything for the comfort that I have a God who wants to deal with me in this way. And we talked about this when we mentioned the sacrament of the altar, that here you've got this institution that is given in such detail in four different accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and St. Paul. And it's such detail and it's so rich because of how central this is, right? Nothing else in Christ's life other than the crucifixion and the resurrection, nothing else is given with such detail by so many giving these accounts. I think there's only one other miracle. I think it's the feeding of the 5,000 that all four gospels record. But outside of that, you've got just the words of institution and then the sealing of the testament in the crucifixion, and then the resurrection that proves to us that our hope is not in vain. So question number 12 is so important for us just to take a step back every now and then and just appreciate the weight of these words, and not just when we're hearing the pastor speak them, but in the days before, in times apart from the liturgy. Again, that's not, I don't mean to imply there that while it's happening in the liturgy, it's just rote. It's obviously not. You know, the, this is the high climactic point of the divine service. Pastors either 
speak these words with the greatest of reverence, or they chant these words and the congregation, you know, there is definitely this sense, I think, and we don't want to become enthusiasts about this, but there's this sense that here is the climactic moment in this promise of these words of institution. So good to repeat them again and realize this is what I can put all of my hope in because my Lord is faithful to me. Then when you look at number 13, this is another beautiful question in its simplicity and in a sense, in its bluntness. Do you believe then that the true body and blood of Christ are in the sacrament? Yes, I believe it. Now, let me give you another story here. We actually use, we take some liturgical license at Calvary, and I can't remember now, I'd have to look back if it's Ash Wednesday or if it's Holy Thursday. On one of those two occasions, we actually use these 20 questions right within the context of the service. We just take a time out after the prayers of the church, and we go through these 20 questions and we recite them corporately as a gathered congregation. And this question number 13, in a sense, is my favorite, just to hear the congregation give their vocal assent that, yes, this is what we are hanging our hat on. And I often, you know, it, again, I don't want to sound like an enthusiast here, but it almost brings a tear to the eye when you stop after question 13 in preparation for question 14. I just stop for an extra moment and to hear sort of that sound echo through the sanctuary that, yes, I believe it right? This is our confidence. This is our joy that we are not gathered here as a bunch of, in a sense, dead Orthodox people who are just walking through the motions and don't really care about this. This is God's promise to us. And as Luther says, take they our life, goods, fame, child, and wife, let these things all be gone. They yet have nothing one of the kingdom ours remaineth, and not just the kingdom, but the feast of the kingdom and the marriage banquet and that fidelity of Christ to his church as seen in that marriage banquet and as, as experienced in that marriage banquet, this is ours. And so to be able to say, yes, I believe it. And it's such a joy to hear the congregation say that with a conviction that in a sense reverberates throughout the sanctuary. I just want to add something, and we'll cover some of this probably in the next two episodes as we wrap up this series about the catechetical life as played out in the liturgy. But just to give a hearty amen to what you said, and then to play off of that, I do think that this does happen on an every Sunday basis when we have the Lord's Supper. And I always encourage my people to do this. And it's a good thing to do is that when I come by and I hold up the wafer, right? And I say, the true body of Christ for you, I encourage them to say, amen. And then same thing with the cup, right? I come with the chalice and I say, take and drink the true blood of Christ given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And I teach them to say, amen. It's the same thing. And it is as beautiful there for me, at least anyway. And I know for a lot of folks who make use of this practice, and I actually even teach my junior confirmation kids, I want you to say, amen, loudly, like that you actually believe this to be true. Yes, that is Christ's body. I do believe that. That's what the word amen means. It says, Yes, yes, this is so, right? Uh, let it be so. This, I give my assent to this. I believe it, right? And so uh, just that little bit of encouragement there that they don't just have to do it with the Christian questions and answers. Great practice to include that. I'll allow you a little liturgical license there. Good to use that on special services and so forth, be it Ash Wednesday or Monday, Thursday. We definitely would fit with both of those. But 
you can do this every single Sunday. Just give your amen right there and declare it as, yes, I do believe that this is Christ's true body. This is Christ's true blood in this sacrament. And we reflect that not only in some of the physical ways that we show reverence and piety that you've talked about previously as well. And again, we'll probably talk about in the next couple episodes, but also with our words that we declare amen there. So I just wanted to tag that encouragement in there as well before you went on. Well, that's a great point. And I certainly give a hearty amen to that. I've actually been trying to teach more and more exactly what you've taught your folks there is to encourage the folks of Calvary, say amen, you know, whether it's at the altar rail, whether it's in the uh, greeting of the sermon or, you know, at the end of the sermon, uh, you know, I've jokingly said, why, why in the world would we allow the Baptists to have ownership of that word amen? Now they sort of do it in this sort of ecstatic way where there's just no rhyme or reason to it, but within the good order of the liturgical life, there's certain plenty of occasion and reason for every Christian to give that hearty amen. Absolutely so. And, you know, as we're talking about questions 14 and 15 and following from this, you're absolutely right. This is a conviction that is ours because of the words themselves, right? Question 14, what convinces you to believe this, right? What is the basis of your conviction? It's the word of Christ. Take, eat, this is my body. Drink of it, all of you. This is my blood. Uh, I was uh, teaching uh, not too long ago here, my congregation and I have been studying Second Timothy, where uh, Paul is trying to encourage Timothy, do not be timid. And one of the things he talks about is the difference between being fearful and having faith. But then also you see right in the text there in chapter one, you see the difference between timidity and conviction. And Paul says, I know whom I believe. And this is exactly the joy that we Christians have, that every Sunday when those words of institution reverberate throughout the sanctuary, and pastors, if you're listening, say those words as clearly and boldly as you can, chant them as well as you can, again, not to be enthusiasts about it or to be dramatic or overly dramatic about it, but to simply say, here are the words of our hope because Christ who promises is faithful. And so both questions 14 and 15 speak to that conviction that is ours because of the promises of Christ. All right. And let's go ahead and take uh, 16 and 17 here together then, and then we'll kind of finish out from there, 18 through 20. So 16 and 17 are these questions. Why should we remember and proclaim his death? First, so that we may learn to believe that no creature could make satisfaction for our sins. Only Christ, true God and man, could do that. Second, so we may learn to be horrified by our sins and to regard them as very serious. Third, so we may find joy and comfort in Christ alone and through faith in him be saved. What motivated Christ to die and make full payment for your sins? His great love for his Father and for me and other sinners, as it is written in John 14, Romans 5, Galatians 2, and Ephesians 5. All right, thus far, uh, questions 16 and 17. Go ahead and give us the focus going on here in these two questions, Pastor Westall. Yeah, these two questions are questions that I think we, you know, the content of them we know quite well. So I would, just in terms of the theology, so I would focus again on sort of the thought process. In question 16, why should we remember and proclaim his death? First, that we may learn to believe how necessary it is that he died. 
and no mere creature, right? This is a great confession that reminds us and everyone else that would hear us confess this, that Christ was never created, uh, you know, not some Aryan mindset or early church history mindset that says, uh, you know, he's basically a creation. There was a time when he was not that type of a thing. But no, we utterly depend upon him as God of God, light of light, very God of very God. The second point that we then may learn to be horrified by our sins. I right, think about this again, you are not just sinning against other creatures, which would be bad enough, but you are sinning against the God who created you and the God who has every reason then to throw you away as his corrupted creation, to condemn you. And so we should be horrified by our sins. Here is a God who so wonderfully has made me, and yet I, in a sense, almost thumb my nose at him in my sin and say, I would rather be God than believe in you as my God, capital M, me, rather than Jesus Christ. And so we should be horrified by our sins. We shouldn't try to explain them away, nor should we be so proud that we are too prideful to admit and confess them and repent of them. Then thirdly, that we may find joy and comfort in Christ, and that's exactly what the penitent can have. Joy, comfort, Christ alone, through faith in him, he saves because of his great love for us, because of his love for his Father, right? I have come to do my Father's will. Father, glorify your Son that your Son might glorify thee, but also because of his love for me and for other sinners, that God so loved the world that he gave Christ, and Christ willingly came out of great love for the world. All right, I'm going to push us forward here just because we're running short of time, but there's definitely, I want to cover these last questions and then also the note. So uh, sorry if this seems a little abrupt to just push us forward, but to pick up with questions 18, 19, and 20, I'll read those and let you briefly comment. And then I also want to hit this note as well. So question 18, finally, why do you wish to go to the sacrament that I may learn to believe that Christ out of great love died for my sin and also learn from him to love God and my neighbor? What should admonish and encourage a Christian to receive the sacrament frequently? First, both the command and the promise of Christ the Lord. Second, his own pressing need, because of which the command, encouragement, and promise are given. But what should you do if you are not aware of this need and have no hunger and thirst for the sacrament? To such a person, no better advice can be given than this. First, he should touch his body to see if he still has flesh and blood. Then he should believe what the scriptures say of it in Galatians 5 and Romans 7. Second, he should look around and see whether he is still in the world, and remember that there will be no lack of sin and trouble, as the scriptures say in John 15 through 16 and 1 John 2 and 5. Third, he will certainly have the devil also around him, who with his lying and murdering day and night will let him have no peace, within or without, as the scriptures picture him in John 8 and 16, 1 Peter 5, Ephesians 6, and 2 Timothy 2. And then I'll just throw this note on here as well that we have at the end of the Christian questions and their answers. And then in the remaining uh, three, four minutes here or so, just let you take us out, Pastor Bestel. So this is the note. These questions and answers are no child's play, but are drawn up with great earnestness of purpose by the venerable and devout Dr. Luther for both young and old. Let each one pay attention and consider it a serious matter. For St. Paul writes to the Galatians in chapter six, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. All right, Pastor Besta, with the remaining last few minutes here, go ahead and give us the focus of these and take us out with this. 
Yeah, the focus of these last three questions is pretty simple, but I love how it ties in with everything we've been talking about throughout the series, which is sort of summarized with this one phrase, faith in God, fervent love toward one another, right? This is the Christian life. It's a life of trusting God's promises and desiring to love my neighbor. And yet, as these questions point out, as we examine ourselves, we see our pressing need Right? We learn to believe, as question 18 says, that on account of our pressing need, Christ has done so much and given of himself so much that out of that great love, he died for my sin. Uh, and from that, I may also learn to love God and my neighbor. Right. So question 18 says, I wish to go to the sacrament because I know the gospel and the gospel produces love, right? Faith in the gospel, faith in Christ produces love of God and my neighbor. Faith forms love, not the other way around. It's not love forms faith. Faith forms love. And I have this wonderful, precious gift of Christ crucified that daily benefits me unto eternal life. And therefore, I know my pressing need, and I know the command of the holy law, but also the promise of the precious gospel. So I know both law and gospel. I see my pressing need in the face of all of that, but in the gospel, I also see Christ. And because I have Christ, then I can learn to love God and love my neighbor. And so what should you do if you are not aware of this need and have no hunger and thirst for the sacrament? The comments here almost remind you of that jesting comment that Luther makes that he should touch his body, right? There it is in, in line two of, of question 20. This is the same comment that he makes in the large catechism. and says, look, if you don't think you need this, then see whether or not you're still a person with flesh and blood. Everyone needs this. And yet then this goes on to cite Romans 7, Galatians 5, John 15 uh, and 16, 1 John 2 and 5, all these great scriptural passages to just ground us in the scriptures that say this is law and gospel, this is faith in God. This is fervent love in one another. Now that you know your need and now that you've wrestled with that need, go joyfully to the sacrament. And that's why that final note is so helpful. This is no child's play. Think of how often Luther mentions that in the large catechism, especially in the Ten Commandments, God will not be mocked, right? This is no child's play to deal with the divine things of God. We have this great weighty responsibility before the holy law that condemns us, but we also have this great joy and comfort in the gospel that we get to handle the divine things of God. Uh, we get to touch and handle things unseen in the sacrament, right? And therefore we can go and in great joy, we can kneel before and fall before our God and know that he will care for us and know that he will forgive us and strengthen us and sustain us even unto that life everlasting that he has promised us. That is our catechist, Pastor Mark Vestal, for this series, The Catechized Life. And that wraps up our catechesis today on the section four of Luther's Small Catechism, the 20 Christian questions and their answers. Thank you so much for that catechesis here today, Pastor Bessel. Next time, we will pick up a two-parter that we're going to take in two subsequent episodes where we take a look at the catechetical life as played out in our liturgy. So we'll continue to talk about some of these things that we've talked all throughout this series and see how that plays out in the worship life of the congregation. And then also, as we've continued to talk about as well, also our Christian faith and life in daily life as we live as liturgical people every single day. 
single day by God's grace. So continue to come back for us with that. Thank you for stopping by today, dear listener. And until next time, keep confessing, church. Thank you.